Hello all and a warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the number one North Wales one person and his cat true crime show that looks for those tales that are more often than not the forgotten or unfamiliar ones from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Paul. It's as great as it always is having you guys joining me here today and I hope that as you're hearing me that the episode finds all of you good and well. So this episode then, we're capping the maniac arc off here on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast so I can actually go and research and write something else. Don't get me wrong, I've got no regrets of undertaking such a complex tale and I've been thrilled bringing it to you. But as I'm sure that if you're in the show's Facebook discussion group, then you will have seen by a recent photo that I shared, I've had an absolute bloody sickness of Robert Knapper by now. There's a fair few books that won't be coming off my library shelves for a long time coming unless I dust or move house or something of course. Now this episode, as I said in the previous instalment, this time around we shall look at an unsolved crime that Napper has long been the prime suspect in. I did say unsolved murders last time around I know, but when you research Napper, depending on the date of the information that you find, then the same collection of three names come up that he's consistently linked with. At least one of these names is now officially a solved case and lies at the feet of another absolute scumbag that we'll meet at a future date here on The Enthusiast. And the remaining two, well there are conflicting reports about. Some will say they're connected, some will say that they aren't. So what I've decided to do with the last part of Maniac is to look here at the one case of these that I personally would put Napper so far to the top of the tree that he might as well be a bloody Christmas decoration at, whilst the other will take the focus of this month's bonus Patreon episode of the show. I've chosen to do this because the one higher profile case out of these, I think myself, lies a bit closer to home to the victim. So it'll be an account of an individual case really and not part 9 of Maniac. As I do whenever we look at unsolved cases here on the show, I'll recount the known details and then the arguments for and against Napa being responsible. I'm not saying that what I come out with is what happened in any way, shape or form, but nor am I trying to waffle deliberate shite either. It's as ever myself just thinking out loud. On the subject of Patreon, warm thanks are going out this time around to my returning and new supporters, with shout-outs this episode going to Lindsay Baker, Mary Carrickfield, Andrea McKemish, Fiona McCulloch, Lydia Pappas and Mesmic. Kudos to you guys, it's so very kind and appreciated of you. Now there has been stuff sent out for some of you, it may take a bit of time to get to because of the bloody apocalypse and all that, but it is on its way and I hope that you've caught up with some of the unreleased bonus episodes of the show that you get for being a Patreon supporter. I think there's some 17 or 18 in the back catalogue still. Like these guys, you can get to hear tales such as the latest bonus episode, Madness at Mother Max, or other past tales such as Operation Magnesium, The Samaritan and the Salvationist, or The Murder of Janie Shepherd, faster than Ken Barlow, goes through Nodders and Little Black Books by simply heading over to the Patreon site and seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Always remember the podcast suffix on there. And you'll see the show logo anyway with the creepy hand and the figure. Or there's always a link placed within the episode show notes. Now also within the episode show notes is a link to the Enthusiasts fundraiser for Macmillan Cancer Support 
which I'm so chuffed to say that we're currently at 60% of what I'd ideally love to totally raise for it. Now I'm bowled over with that, it's so generous of you guys, and I've decided that because you've been so very kind and it's been so very well received and supported, each series going forward from this one, I'll be doing a fundraiser for a different charity each time around. Your kind donations, should you wish to, are always welcomed, and a link to the page is either in the episode show notes, as I've said, or it can be found in the show's Facebook discussion group. This time around then, we're back to the area of Acton in West London and back to March 1993. Now Acton itself is known for being the location of the UK's first ever Waitrose supermarket. The tower block that's seen in the opening credits of Only Fools and Horses was on the South Acton estate. The famous Monty Python's Flying Circus sketch, Bicycle Repairman, was filmed on Acton's Churchfield Road. It can count musician and actor Adam Faith and Jon Snow himself, Kit Harrington, as two of its famous offspring. But my favourite of Acton's claims to fame is that it was the birthplace of legendary band The Who. As all members, Bar Mooney, met in 1964 when they were attending Acton High School. Mooney was probably off learning to blow things up prior to joining. But to 47-year-old Jean Bradley, back in March 1993, Acton was just somewhere that she'd chosen to park her company car. A place chosen because it was respectable, because it was safe. Until one night in March 1993, it wasn't. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as ever, please do use your discretion whilst you're listening in folks. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we bring the maniac arc to a close with part 8 and an episode entitled, Gene's Story. 47-year-old Jean Bradley had begun parking a company-issue rose-coloured BMW car, registration number K771MPN, on Acton's Carberry Avenue, a quiet residential middle-class-looking street of mock Tudor houses, every weekday morning for the best part of a year before March 1993. In the autumn of 1991, Jean had had a change of career, Gone was a job of 10 years with an estate agent in the Berkshire market town of Windsor and instead she'd started a high-profile well-paid role as an operations manager for a relocation firm operating out of London's West End. A bit more of a commute from Jean's home in the Berkshire village of Crowthorne, which is the home of Broadmoor, which I'm sure needs no introduction really on the show. The new high-paying job came with a company car that for the first few months Jean would use to commute back and to from the office to home. Now as parking in the West End of London is both costly and an imaginable nightmare at the best of times, I've only ever parked in London a couple of times and I'd honestly rather drink concrete than ever even push a bloody Monopoly car around it, let alone drive in the capital again. Jean and her partner Nick Osborne after a few months looked for a better solution. By the spring of 1992, they'd hit upon the best solution being that Jean would drive as far into the capital as was practical and then take advantage of the underground to get to the offices of the firm she worked at, which were located on Bond Street, right in the heart of the Diamond District of the city. 
To do so, Jean's best option was to drive from home into London via the M3, the dreaded M25 and onto the M4, which would take her as far as the district of Acton. If she could leave her car parked somewhere here, then it was only a short walk to Acton Town Underground Station, then a few stops on the Piccadilly line, before changing at Green Park Station for a one-stop trip on the Jubilee line, and after a short walk from here, she was practically at the office. She and Nick spent a couple of their free weekends driving around looking for a suitable place in Acton where she could leave her car parked for free, whilst having the peace of mind that her unattended vehicle would be safe from theft or vandalism, and they soon came across Carberry Avenue, which fitted the bill to a T. It was the perfect distance and a respectable looking avenue. Each morning going on from here then, Jean would leave home early to make the 30 mile commute to here and would be parked up in a spot at the top of Carberry Avenue by about 7.30am before walking to Acton Town Station to make the second leg of her trip via the tube. Now after a few weeks this became a polished routine. She knew what times exactly to leave and when and where she would likely hit traffic. The kind of awareness that you develop when you gain familiarity with any regular commute that you make. Having a reputation as a workaholic, Jean would then put in a full day at the office, often being the first one there and the last one to leave, before making the return journey back home to Crowthorne. Jean and her partner Nick, who was five years her junior, had met in a pub near Hampton Court in 1972 and had gone on to be in a happy and stable relationship for the next 21 years. Over the years, though marriage between the pair had been discussed, it hadn't become a priority and they'd developed a happy and prosperous life together. The couple owned two homes, the £200,000 four-bedroom main home in Crowthorne's Pine Ridge that they'd bought in 1986, and another property, a cottage in the small Essex town of Coggeshall, and as both were busy working professionals, Nick would stay at this property through the week for convenience due to his job as a history master at Essex's Felstead Public School, before commuting home to Berkshire to spend the weekends with Jean. Here, the great loves were socialising with their friends and neighbours, and gardening, with Jean especially being a keen gardener who took great time and care in maintaining the grounds of the couple's home. Now it sounds a bit more of a sedate existence from the previous life that Jean had led, for she'd begun her working life in the 1960s as a stewardess for British Airways, travelling all over the world, and also where she'd often travelled on the prestigious Queen's flight with the Queen and other members of the royal family. Such was Jean's professional yet pleasant demeanour. She was reportedly sought after by name whenever Princess Margaret was a passenger on the Queen's flight. Working as this for many years, eventually Jean progressed to become a purser and trainer of stewardesses, before in the early 1980s deciding on a complete change of career and going to work as an estate agent. A transfer to a Windsor office followed soon afterwards, over which time she and Nick bought their house in Pine Ridge, and for the remainder of the 1980s, Jean happily worked at this. Then, with the turn of the decade into the 1990s, she fancied a new challenge for herself and took the post of operations manager for an American relocation firm, Pricoa Relocation Management, soon becoming well-liked by her colleagues and respected for a diligent hard work ethic. Indeed, as we said, 
Jean gained a reputation as a bit of a workaholic. Now I wasn't able to find out much more about Jean really. There's no record of any other family that she had apart from an older brother, David. Nick and Jean had no children themselves. There's nothing that's mentioned about any nieces or nephews either had. And there's nothing that suggested the couple were anything but content and happy together. They worked hard and wanted for nothing, spoke lots on the telephone when they were apart and had a good time together at the weekends, and they travelled whenever they could, with their latest trip, a week's break in Rome, planned for the Easter week of April 1993. Now this would actually be the second time in the Italian capital in almost as many weeks for Nick, as at the end of March, he was one of a party of five teachers from Felstead that were tasked with chaperoning a school trip of 24 sixth formers on a week's visit there. Throughout that week he was away, he'd spoken to Jean several times over the telephone as she was full of questions ahead of their own visit to Rome the following week. Thursday the 25th of March 1993 was an ordinary working day for Jean then. She'd gone to work as usual, as was custom, had put in a full day, and at about 6.45pm, she was still there when her boss, Ian Payne, stuck his head around her office door to say goodnight. Jean left herself only shortly after Ian, locking up and making her way from the New Bond Street offices to the tube station, where she changed trains a stop later at Green Park, then making her way here to catch a connecting train on the Piccadilly line to Acton Town Station. An uneventful journey, and Jean had arrived at Acton Town Station no later than 7.20pm. Now whilst I was researching the episode, I came across another account of this case presented in a podcast called Still at Large. It's a very, very good show worth listening to, and there's a link to the episode within my own episode show notes. Now within the episode of Still at Large, it's claimed that there was no more than a nine minute walk from the station to where Jean's car was parked, taking the route down Gunnersbury Crescent, heading into Gunnersbury Gardens and then on into Carberry Avenue. And looking at Google Maps, which you gotta do all the time, haven't you? This indeed did seem to be the quickest and most logical route for Jean to have taken. Jean exited the station and stopped at a kiosk nearby purchasing two cans of Diet Coke from the vendor before continuing on foot towards a car. Now, although the streets weren't at the time particularly well lit and at half seven on a March evening, it's dark by that time, isn't it? As we've said, it appeared to be a respectable neighbourhood. Over the past few months, Jean had come to be familiar with it and felt comfortable walking through it. And as she approached a car, there was no reason to suggest that she had anything in her conscious apart from getting home for the evening and perhaps even taking a call from Nick before going to bed. Reaching a car, as was routine for Jean, she unlocked it and placed a handbag and groceries that she'd just purchased onto the back seat, closed the door and prepared to set off home. Sadly, all thoughts of getting home that evening had just gone out of the window. As Jean was walking towards her car, she could not possibly have known that she'd had just moments left to live. Before she could get into the driver's seat, Jean was suddenly and viciously attacked by a tall gaunt figure who without warning proceeded to stab Jean several times in the back, the sides and the front. Loudly screaming, 
Jean sank to the cold pavement as the man continued his frenzied attack, stabbing him repeatedly with the blade, which was later to be determined as a butcher or carving type knife 8 inches in length. Although she was gravely wounded, Jean did attempt to fend off her attacker, resulting in several wounds to her hands and fingers, and her screams brought lights on in the houses on Carberry Avenue and people rushing to the windows to see what the commotion was about. At about the same time, a 35-year-old self-employed carpenter and father of two, Patrick Cunningham, was driving down Carberry Avenue when he noticed the struggle and stopped to intervene. He described later, I saw her face for about three seconds. I will never forget that look. She was screaming. She was frightened. The screams were so terrible, they even frightened me. Getting out of his van, Patrick noticed that the man was holding Jean down with his left hand whilst attacking her with his right, kneeling all over her, Patrick was to describe it as. He went on. I saw his clenched fist going up and down. He was kneeling all over her. At the time, I didn't know how badly injured the woman had been. I only knew he was attacking a woman and I wanted to get him. If I'd got the man to the ground, he would never have got up. When Patrick approached the man, the assault ceased and the man stood up and strode off along Carberry Avenue in the direction of Gunnersbury Gardens. At about the same time as a woman and her son were driving along Carberry Avenue in the same direction. They noticed the man walking away with peculiar long strides, although he didn't seem to be in any particular hurry, and noticed that he was wearing a three-quarter white or cream type coat, and what has been described almost unanimously by all witnesses as a black sou'wester type hat. Suddenly, as they passed the figure, the woman and her son became aware of a van driving right up behind their car, beeping the horn, and so the woman pulled over to allow the van past. It did so and screeched to a halt a short distance ahead at the corner of Gunnersbury Gardens and Gunnersbury Lane. Now the driver of the van was Patrick, who after ensuring that an ambulance was on its way for Jean, called for by residents who by that time had come out of their houses and were aiding the gravely injured woman, had gotten back into his van with a fire lit right under his arse and was determined not to let the man get away. Pulling up ahead of him, Patrick got out and approached the figure, saying words to the effect of, All right, mate, you just attacked a woman back there. Come on, you bastard, try me. I'm not a woman. He recalled later, I blocked him from where he wanted to go and he looked back. I said, Come on, try me. But the man raised his arm with a solid object inside a black plastic bag gripped in his fist. He said, I'll have you, and barged past. Backing off slightly, when the man ran off, Patrick decided to head off in pursuit of him, firstly appealing to the woman and his son to call the police, which the lad went to a nearby house to do so. This was a couple of years before mobile phones were widespread. The pursuit led out of Gunnersbury Gardens and up the main thoroughfare of the A4000 Gunnersbury Lane, back past Acton Town Station that Jean had left only 15 minutes before, before heading right onto Bollow Lane. Here, Patrick again flagged down the driver of a white Golf GTI and attempted to get him to contact police before abandoning the attempt to continue his pursuit of the attacker, not wanting to risk losing him. The chase continued down Bollow Lane, 
where Patrick regained his lost ground and got to within a few feet of the attacker before he turned left into Osborne Road and then into Hanbury Road. Now here Patrick made a second attempt to stop the attacker by picking up and throwing a dustbin at him which did reportedly strike him about the legs but failed to stop him. By this time the pursuit had reached Bollow Bridge Road. Now almost 30 years have passed since the incidents that I'm describing here and the layout of some of these locations has changed quite drastically. Buildings that stood at the time have been demolished or renovated and developments have taken over in several places so a full picture of the exact route taken is difficult. But from descriptions that can be pieced together, at some point on Bollow Bridge Road, probably by the former Harbour Lights pub that was at a number 130, the attacker veered off left from here, almost heading back on himself through the footpaths and parkland of the South Acton estate. Patrick continued following the man, but dropped back to a distance, ducking behind cars and street furniture on the route to allow the man to feel that he'd lost his pursuer and so slow to a trot. Patrick recalled, I came into South Acton as he walked through it. I ducked and dived behind so he wouldn't realise he was being followed. But he did spot me and ran down the hill, past flats, into Ragley Close. I lost him then. Now as we've heard, the layout of these places has changed, so it's impossible to describe the area exactly as it was back in 1993. But the area that the man had run into was a sprawling estate of a mixture of high-rise flats and housing just off Acton's Church Road, and Patrick had lost sight of the man as he'd rounded a corner ahead of him. Now he must have been proper bloody annoyed by this, you would be, wouldn't you? He'd been chasing the man for more than a mile and over ten minutes by that time, but it was no use. Patrick had lost him. The man was nowhere to be seen. By Patrick, that is. An unnamed witness, leaning over a top-floor balcony of a property in Ragley Close, had witnessed the man run into the courtyard and take shelter against the front door of one of the houses there, though of course he knew nothing of the circumstances. He watched as the man, who he was to describe later as in an agitated state, definitely on edge, went from one door to another as though he was looking for the best way off the estate before disappearing into an adjacent underground car park. Moving to a better vantage position, the witness noticed the man appear a moment later out of the rear exit of the car park and cross a courtyard where he was last seen heading up towards nearby Buckland Walk. He'd noticed that the man appeared to have a peculiar gait as though he was flat-footed, the witness put it, and described the similar attire as the other witnesses had noticed. He furthered, that he'd also noticed the man held an object very tightly in his right hand. Now as Patrick was making his way towards where he'd left his van, he could not have known that the attacker he'd just chased was by that time actually a killer. The man had stabbed Jean some 30 times to the back and chest, with at least one of the wounds puncturing her lung and another piercing her heart. Although an ambulance arrived swiftly and paramedics battled to save her, her injuries were too grave and due to shock and massive blood loss, Jean died there on the pavement of Carberry Avenue. The safe street that she and Nick had chosen because of its appearance as being just this. 
as the resulting murder investigation, launched immediately and spearheaded by Detective Superintendent Bob Fenton, began conducting house-to-house inquiries in the Carberry Road area and further afield. A look at Jean's life got underway to determine if there was any motive for the attack or a standout suspect, perhaps somebody with a personal grudge against her due to the ferocity of the attack. And attempts were made to contact her immediate family and her partner Nick. Sadly, it was the following morning before Nick was reached and was made aware of what had happened. On the day he and the party of children he was part of the supervisory of were due to travel back from their Rome trip. Nick recalled later in a newspaper interview, It was an inspector whose name I can't remember from Acton. He told me Jean had suffered an assault and she had died. I thought he did it very well in the circumstances. It must have been hell for him to speak to someone so far away. Protected by his stunned colleagues, Nick recalled, I had to carry on with my job and get the children home. Initially, I put a brave face on it all. This gave way to shock when I was met by the police at Gatwick. You can't even know how you would react unless you're in that situation, could you? Unimaginable. So devastated and shocked was Nick that his smoking habit reached 40 a day. He developed a slight stutter that when he did manage to speak, was punctuated only by deep sighs and he required counselling. In an interview just a week after the murder, he told the Guardian newspaper, It was a short walk to the station with lots of commuters about. We thought it was safe. It seems silly now, but you don't go around picking a spot because you think you might get stabbed. And until you mentioned it, I never even knew that was the name of the street. My life revolved around her. I am totally, utterly shocked. I can't think of any reason why anyone should do this. When I wake up in the morning, I think, it's all been a bad dream. I just expect Jean to be here. I keep looking out the window and saying, when are you going to turn up? Friends and neighbours were in helping, but it was all a mist. Saturday and Sunday just sort of disappeared. The police have been marvellous. They've kept me fully informed and were very kind. They even made me stop to eat at Dartford Bridge Services. I think they're doing a great job. Now the shock of the crime was felt far and wide. Jean's devastated brother David was quoted as saying, I cannot take it all in. I keep expecting her to come in the door and carry on. Neither I nor her boyfriend Nick have accepted that she's gone. I'm going to miss her an awful lot. I just don't understand why someone would do this. Close friends and neighbours of Jean, Beryl and Ronald Hogburn, meanwhile, said, Our thoughts are now with her boyfriend Nick and her brother David. We are all horrified by Jean's death. I can't believe she's gone. You couldn't find a nicer person. We used to go across to her house for drinks and dinner, and she used to come to us. We were planning to join our two front gardens this summer. I only saw her a week ago, and we talked about it then. She loved pottering around in the garden. It was a great joy. For this to happen to Jean, of all people, my wife and I still don't believe it. And Jean's colleagues at Prycoa described this shock and sadness at her death, describing her as a dedicated professional woman and saying, We're as much at a loss to understand and come to terms with this as anybody. 
Our hearts, prayers and thoughts go out to our closest family and friends. So whilst Jean's loved ones, friends and colleagues tried to begin to come to terms with their tragic loss, the police investigation was moving at a rapid rate and without sounding too critical, was rapidly getting nowhere. From the witnesses who'd seen the killer, the key one being Patrick Cunningham, police were able to gain a description of a white male of indeterminate age but thought to be mid-twenties to thirty, tall, six foot plus, slim, with a gaunt face and high cheekbones, what appeared to be a couple of days growth of stubble on his face, wearing black trousers that appeared too short for him as they flapped up when he ran, a white or cream three-quarter length coat, and this sou'wester type hat that was described as shiny in appearance, as though it may possibly have been covered with a bin liner. Now this was especially remembered as it was a cold, but it was a dry night. London isn't right next to the sea, is it? And such an odd hat looked so out of place in West London. An appeal was made for people to come forward who'd witnessed the pursuit, because over a mile and ten minutes in length, police theorised that there would have been several other people who would have witnessed this, whilst the search for a motive and a suspect began. The examination of Jean's life came back with no leads though, there was nothing unlawful or illicit in it, and nobody had a bad word to say about her, let alone to wish her dead. She had reported nobody threatening or stalking her, and was by all accounts carefree. Work was going well, she had a happy home life, and was looking forward to being on holiday in just a week's time. No, it seemed that police were dealing with what are always the most difficult of cases, a stranger murder, and Detective Superintendent Fenton told the press days after the killing, at about 6.45pm, her managing director put his head around the door and said goodnight. We believe she left her office in New Bond Street shortly afterwards. It would have taken her nine minutes to walk to Green Park Station, where she caught the Piccadilly line for the 18-minute ride to Acton Town. We have no motive. We can only speculate that it might have been an attempted robbery. But this was an extremely vicious attack. It was a sickening attack on a woman by a man with a knife, and a vicious knife, an 8-inch carving or butcher's type knife. She had no chance from the start. The victim was stabbed more than once, and received injuries to the back and front. We believe that attack could only have taken a few seconds, and one wound was fatal. He then issued a description of the killer, describing his dress and his gait, and described Patrick chasing the killer from the scene, adding, He's a very, very gaunt man. This man has probably come to the attention of national agencies for help. He may have also bought his clothes at charity shops. That's the kind of thing we believe that he's doing. What Pat did was very brave. If he hadn't done what he did, we wouldn't have half the information about the killer that we do. Officers remained questioning potential witnesses at Acton Town Underground Station for several days after the murder, working on the theory that Jean's killer may possibly have stalked her from the tube, and if so, a regular commuter may very well have noticed him. Indeed, reports were to filter through to police of a similar-looking character who'd been sighted previously who had unnerved several women before, but not on the night of the murder. 
Now this line of questioning didn't lead to any breakthroughs in the investigation apart from this information, but one officer did spot a lady who looked strikingly like Jean, so much so that she was asked to take part in a reconstruction of Jean's last known movements. The woman, her anonymity, besides the fact that she was a law lecturer in the city, was maintained. She agreed to help, as if you refused to do something like that, eh? And indeed, retraced Jean's final journey. Yet bar the witnesses I've already mentioned here, by three weeks after the killing, despite their inquiries, this was pretty much all police had to go on. The one piece of physical evidence that they had was a sliver of a black plastic carrier bag about eight inches across. It had been found on Jean's person and didn't match anything else found on her, so police considered that it had been torn off the bag that the knife used to stab Jean had been wrapped in as she fought for her life. The scrap of plastic had what appeared to be a floral pattern motif and the words printed in the United could be made out although nothing more discernible than this. It was shown on BBC's Crime Watch UK on Thursday the 15th of April 1993 when a reconstruction of Jean's murder was the lead appeal on the show because Crime Watch was still on then and it was still going strong back then, you see. Thanks very much, BBC. With Patrick Cunningham having assisted and selected an actor who best resembled the killer from a casting portfolio, the appeal recounted all that police knew about Jean's final movements, a detailed Patrick chasing the killer, then losing him, before the witness from the flat balcony on Ragley Close subsequently spotted the man and watched him heading into Buckland Walk. All of the noticed idiosyncrasies of the killer were shown, his peculiar striding gait, the hard object that was wrapped in black plastic, as well as a memorable photo fit of the killer compiled by Patrick, and that will give you nightmares that, which if you head over to the show's Instagram page, is reproduced there. Chief Superintendent Fenton emphasised that other people must have witnessed this pursuit and urged them to come forward, as well as informing that police believed that Jean's killer was likely a loner and strange character, possibly disturbed and may well be known to local social services, drug or alcohol centres, or medical or psychiatric health authorities. Now a link to the Crime Watch appeal containing this reconstruction and all of this can be found with the episode show notes this week. The Crime Watch appeal led to police receiving more than 600 calls as a result of the reconstruction, the majority of which were callers suggesting names for the killer or coming forward with accounts of seeing someone similar pestering women on the underground network. Amongst these calls, information did lead to the origin of the plastic carrier bag. It was identified as being a bag with the branding Narcissus on it that was made by a manufacturing company in Ayrshire. However, this lead soon petered out when it was learned that these bags were quite commonplace, being mass manufactured and widely distributed to cash and carries across the country where they were bought in bulk by independent traders. In total, police had more than 400 suspects named that they would have to trawl through, and over the next few weeks, detectives travelled the length and breadth of the country following many of these up, from Glasgow all the way down to Devon. By July, they were also able to whittle a list of these names enough down to be able to hold a series of identity parades to try to identify the killer, 
all the while still appealing for information from the general public. But nothing more was forthcoming. The company that Gene Bradley had worked for, Prycoa Relocation Management, had even put up a £20,000 reward for information that led to the conviction of Gene's killer, but with no result. It just served to strengthen police opinion that the killer was very much a loner. But every day that the killer remained at large, the hurt continued for Nick and Gene's family and friends, who due to the active investigation, couldn't even hold a funeral for her. At the end of July, Nick told press, I seem to be living in limbo at the moment. We are yet to have a funeral because of the ongoing investigation. Obviously, the hardest thing I have to face is not having Jean around. In the first days, I was pretty numb, but I think now I feel angry that she won't be coming back. I feel sort of mystified because I don't think there was anything we could have done to stop it happening. My immediate worry is that there is someone out there who could well do this again. Nothing can be done to bring Jean back, but if someone is arrested and charged with murder, a lot of people can feel more confident when they commute to work. I don't know if I'm coping. Lots of people have been very kind, and the obvious thing is that when I speak to Jean's friends, we share our grief, we support each other. I don't know how long it will take. The counsellor says it's best not to wait too long before you get your act together. School starts again in two weeks, so I suppose I jolly well have to be in action then. You've got to cope, haven't you? Jean certainly wouldn't want me to throw my hands up and give in. She was 100% in everything she did. Patrick Cunningham too was taking his failure to capture the killer hard. He was quoted as saying, All I needed was one person willing to help me. What I did, I think any man should do if he's a man, but no one came to help. All I needed was one person to help me, and the murderer would be behind bars today. I pass the spot where the lady died every day of the week. Something just drags me back. Sometimes I go around the area I chase the killer through. I suppose I'm just hoping that I might see him again. Now whilst I'm not suggesting that the police were anything but 100% in their hunt for Jean's killer, it did go off on a serious tangent in a way that's not immediately apparent if you only casually research the case. Because in August 1993, a man was arrested and ended up being charged with Jean's murder, spending just over two months in prison on remand before being released. One of the names that had been suggested as a result of the calls to Crime Watch UK following its appeal was that of a 39-year-old unemployed man who lived in the Northolt area of London named Francis George Joseph Marnell who was suggested as a possible because of his resemblance to the actor portraying the killer in the reconstruction. Born in Liverpool in 1954, Frank Marnell, as he was most commonly known, was the youngest and 11th child of a large family, bright enough at school to have passed the 11 plus and going on to obtain nine O-levels, before in the 1960s going on to study engineering for a period at night school. But by age 17, Frank had decided that Liverpool didn't hold many prospects for him and he decided to move down south and join his sister Dora who lived in Southall in West London. From here, his itchy feet soon took hold again 
1972 Frank decided to make the move to Australia where he moved and hitchhiked around for the next four years. Over this period Frank became at first a recreational drug user before developing a heroin addiction which he retained even after he came back to the UK in 1976. Now these latter years of the decade saw Frank's physical and mental health deteriorate and he was periodically hospitalised for a mix of conditions of these, eventually being diagnosed as schizophrenic. But then following on from this, throughout the 1980s his diagnosis became something that he learned to live with and indeed was able to control to some degree with medication and the support of some of his family members. He managed to resume his studies continuing studying engineering at Middlesex Polytechnic and was also able to travel abroad, mainly visiting the Netherlands over the years. By the turn of the 1990s, Frank's life was a relatively stable one. At the time of Jean's death, he had his own home in Downside in Northolt that he shared with another man, Paul Martin. He would write poetry and was a keen artist, often emulating the works of David Hockney and Jackson Pollock of whose work Frank was a big admirer of. Socially, his life revolved around St. James's Church and the Oasis Mental Health Self-Help Project in Chiswick, who had assisted and supported him when he'd needed it and going forwards, and whom he now volunteered for and assisted in its functions. Although Frank was still a recreational drug user, there's no record of him ever having a history of violence or of any previous criminal convictions, and indeed, at first he may very well have been just another name to cross off the list. On August the 25th, 1993, he was visited by police and he recalled later, They came at six in the morning, they barged in, they took two photos of me and said they needed to eliminate me from their inquiries. Now Frank claims that he wasn't unduly worried by this, it transpired that the previous year he'd also been named as a possible suspect in a separate murder inquiry. He consented to the photos being taken and told police that he'd likely been home on the evening of Jean's murder where he would have had witnesses to remember and corroborate this despite the five month passage of time. However, once the police had left and after sitting down and thinking about it, considering the location, Frank called the incident room back and volunteered that he may have been in that area at some time that week as he recalled waiting at Acton Town Station for a female friend around that time. The following day he was visited once again and this time was collected and placed onto an identity parade. Again as we've said he wasn't worried by this but he perhaps began to worry when he saw the rest of the men in the lineup. He said later most of the people on it were much smaller than me. I had three months growth of beard and they gave me three rusty razor blades and told me to shave it off. My face was cut to ribbons. It was so obvious I was the suspect. And it was proper 50p 5p time when he was told by police that two independent witnesses had picked him out of the lineup. Frank recalled, I was very hurt and angry and confused. They asked me if it was possible that I'd lost consciousness and not been aware of doing it, to which I responded, as far as I know myself, I have not committed a murder. So when Frank had accepted that this was possible, on the basis of this 
and the eyewitness identification, later that evening, he was charged with the murder of Jean Bradley, to which his response was, I'm innocent, that's all I've got to say. Obviously, the same CPS representatives who had decided that the Colin Stagg honey trap evidence was a smoking gun also. You know what's going on, do you? On the 28th of August, 1993, Francis Marnell appeared at Ealing Magistrates Court charged with the murder of Jean Bradley, where he was then remanded to Her Majesty's Prison Wormwood Scrubs to await a committal hearing before trial. Now Frank didn't have an easy time here on remand. He was to tell afterwards how he was constantly strip-searched and was badly beaten on at least one occasion by other convicts who believed he was a sex attacker, leaving Frank with long-term jaw and inner ear problems. Some of the prison officers themselves he claims were as hostile, as Frank says he was regularly called nonce by some of them, and one even told him that he was looking at spending the rest of his life in Rampton. He rightly began to despair, and claims that after a few weeks, broken, he'd resigned himself to facing trial and possible life imprisonment for something that he didn't do. However, once Frank had been charged, a couple named Joan and Tim Brown, who ran the St. James Church social club that Frank was an active member of, recalled that on the night of Jean's murder, they'd taken some laundered bedding around to Frank and his flatmate, Paul Martin. Now, Joan was certain it was this night, as she remembered the night in question for a number of reasons. Frank had answered the door to her at about 7pm, and another friend of theirs, Rohan Gittins, had called around at the same time as he'd brought a book around on blood disorders that he'd loaned from the local library that day for Paul Martin, who was ill at the time. Joan also remembered that the group had heavily smoked cannabis throughout the three hours that she'd stayed there before leaving at 10pm as she herself was feeling the effects of it as a passive smoker, which was confirmed by her husband and their lodger, Michelle Groom. And if Joan wasn't already sure enough that this was the night in question, she remembered it also because the following morning, she and Tim had gone away to the West Country for their anniversary break. All of these people were spoken to by police and told the same story, yet Frank Marnell remained in prison for more than two months. But the case was picked apart over a two-day committal hearing held at Ealing Magistrates Court on the 9th and 10th of November 1993. Andrew Brierley QC, prosecuting, told on the opening day how Frank Marnell had denied culpability for the crime, but had admitted that he may not have been able to remember committing it. Now this was about the extent of the prosecution case, apart from the eyewitness identification of him at the identity parade. Patrick Cunningham, one of the witnesses who had picked Frank Marnell out of the identification parade lineup, told the court that at the lineup that was held on August the 26th, he had spotted Frank immediately and thought it was the man that he'd chased, saying, He looked back at me, I'll never forget. He had a dead look in his eyes and seemed really evil. I wanted to go through the glass and get at him. If you'd seen what he'd done to that woman, you'd want to do the same yourself. However, he admitted to the court that it had taken him a full eight minutes to make the identification because he was taking his time and being sure. 
He also told how he had attended several other ID parades over the previous months, and at the first one that he'd attended, he had narrowed his choice there down to two different men. The following day, Proceedings were delayed and the hearing did not begin until 3.45pm, but presiding magistrate Ian Comfort was determined that the two allocated days for the committal hearing would not be wasted or overrun, leading to the court sitting until 11.15pm that evening, a practice that's almost unheard of. Mr Comfort even allowed a McDonald's to be brought in and consumed in the dock by the defendant, save an adjournment, and with the exception of a couple of short breaks in proceedings, so court staff could arrange things like childcare, cancelled theatre tickets that one of them had, or apologise for being lengthily delayed in getting home, it was game on. As reporting restrictions were lifted at the request of the defence, the court heard that the only evidence against Frank Marnell was the identification of two eyewitnesses, but that four other eyewitnesses, had positively identified two other men on the same parade. Frank himself, given evidence, told the court that he'd not known this, simply claiming, I'm not dangerous. Stephen Camlish QC for the defence told the court, The defendant was caught up in one of the most dangerous type of cases, that is identification only. He then went on to introduce Joan Brown, who testified as to the exact story that she'd told police. Rohan Gittins also appeared and could even produce the library ticket supporting his story which proved that he'd loaned the aforementioned book out on the day of the murder. Mr Camlish said that this evidence of Frank's alibi was so strong that it was, I quote, incapable of disbelief when looked at with an open mind and he urged that all charges be dismissed saying that to take Frank Marnell to trial on this basis would make him a victim of injustice at its highest. It worked because Mr Comfort ruled that Francis Marnell should not be sent for trial and dismissed the case against him after listening to the evidence, concluding that no jury could be asked to convict him on the evidence presented. Frank later told the Guardian newspaper, I'd been looking at the crest above the magistrate's head. It says, God and my right. I heard the magistrate say, you can go now. And I realised that what the crest said was true. Then I heard the roar from friends and family in the public gallery. And it was like a wave of joy and relief. People have this stereotyped view of people with mental illness that we carry out all these awful crimes. Being crazy is staring at a beautiful thing for six hours trying to take it in, but people don't understand that. The person who killed this woman wasn't crazy, he was malicious, super malicious, which is a different thing. I'm just delighted to be free. Justice has been done. We're going to have a party. His solicitor, Tim Green, also said, The alibi witnesses saw police a few months ago but officers decided to do nothing with the evidence. His family are relieved that justice has been done and Mr Marnell will be staying with them. Now it was also claimed in the same article and indeed as well in court that police had not bothered to carry out DNA tests which could have proved Frank's innocence before any charges were even brought and the main thing that I thought when I read this was how, what DNA did they have 
that it could be used as a basis of elimination against, but I'll come back to that shortly. Following the collapse of the police case, Detective Superintendent Bob Fenton said, We will now sit down and re-look at things and see where we are. But when you're in a position like this, where most of the leads have been completely exhausted, there's no other road to go down. I'll be discussing the court's decision with my team of officers. We will then make a decision on where to go from here. We will also be liaising with the CPS on the matter. The Gene Bradley incident room remains open and there is still a team of officers working on the case who would be happy to receive any new information. Yet no new information was forthcoming and on the first anniversary of the murder, long after all of the floral tributes that had once lined the pavement outside 63 Carberry Avenue had gone, the investigation had ground to a halt. Some 1,800 statements had been taken and more than 1,000 calls to the incident room followed up during the inquiry, with more than 340 suspects being interviewed and eliminated, but Jean's killer remained undetected. Aside from Jean's loved ones and friends, this was felt most strongly by the residents of Carberry Avenue, the scene of the murder. The light in there had, as a result, been somewhat improved with the installation of some 13 new streetlights, but a sense of fear still hung over the area. Spoken to on the first anniversary of Jean's murder, a few of them gave their thoughts. A resident named Roy Follett said, The police seem to have dropped the case and we want to know what they're doing because nobody knows what is happening. People here were very upset and it doesn't help knowing the man is still out there. He could do anything. Another, John Hawkins, said, Some people were afraid to go outside after the attack, and they know that the man has not been caught. I've lived here 31 years. It's a lovely area. Everyone keeps the gardens beautiful, and the cherry blossom is out now. This is not the kind of area that this type of thing happens in. Sadly, it happens anywhere, John. There we have it then, Jean's story. And what do you guys think? Is it possibly another example of the horror Robert Knapper is capable of inflicting? Another set of misery and loss that he's visited upon people, in this case, Jean's loved ones and friends? Or are we looking at yet another disturbed individual who was roaming the streets of London back in the early 1990s with the mindset and the tools to kill indiscriminately. As we've heard throughout the arc, Robert Knapper will never voluntarily admit his responsibility for any other crimes unless the glaring forensic evidence is there, he said as much. And I say other crimes because of course he's done other things. People like Knapper escalate, don't they? Raping a mother or two at knife point in her own home is horror enough. But that didn't de-escalate in any way, did it? There was an increased frequency of sex attacks, then Rachel's murder, which shows that. Then another, well, officially anyway, dormant period followed, before the horrific bloodthirsty murder of Samantha and Jasmine. Now when you plot all of these events on a timescale from 1989 to 1993, and you look at the gaps in between them, Bearing in mind that Napa only served one three-week term of imprisonment throughout this time, you think, what on earth has this guy been doing in between? 
Is Jean's horrific murder one of these? Jean's case was linked almost immediately to the still unsolved murder of Penny Bell, just three miles away from Acton back in 1991, and at the time of Jean's murder, Detective Superintendent Bob Fenton was quoted as saying, There are similarities and non-similarities with the murder of Penny Bell. The main difference here is that this man was interrupted and there were witnesses. It's now claimed that police have since going forward dismissed any links between the two murders. Now as I said at the start, if you're a Patreon supporter of The Enthusiast, then you can get my own thoughts on that crime later this month, as I'll be looking at that case for this month's bonus Patreon episode of the show. But back to Jean's case. Horrific, isn't it? A completely motiveless crime, and let's test the theory that Napa could be responsible for it. It's time for the old thinking out loud. So I don't want to fall into the trap of labelling every unsolved blitz knife attack in the capital at the feet of Robert Knapper, because there may of course be other as twisted people out there. Well, there isn't really any maybe about it. There is, isn't there? But I don't believe that he had a breaks from offending, and I feel that there are certainly crimes out there that Napper has responsibility for. There just isn't the evidence available to bang him to rights and he won't say otherwise. Plus, he's a good suspect for the murder of Gene Bradley, isn't he? How many other people, similar in description to Napa, height-wise, appearance-wise, even dress-wise, carry an 8-inch sharp knife in a black bag and stab random women in an opportunistic orgy of overkill, within a 7-mile area of somewhere he's known to have carried out a similar blitz attack 8 months previously? Yes, London's a big place, and there's a consensus that an offender will operate within a fairly tight perimeter. He attempted to confine Napa to South London based upon his known attacks. But look at Napa's two known murders. 18 miles across London separate them, plus the dots and the weird doodles in his A to Z's range all over the city, so geographically, you can't rule him out. He's across London more than the bloody tube is. He was unemployed at the time of Jean's murder, so it's impossible to alibi him as being in work somewhere and not having the time to get to West London for the early evening. Jean's murder was a blitz stabbing attack, an orgy of violence with a knife, the method that we know Napa utilised in two of his three known killings, and indeed, Jean's murder took place between these. Plus there's the physical description of her killer, over six foot tall, Slim, with a gaunt face, high cheekbones, and eyes that stared straight through you. And of course, this strange gait of the killer while he was fleeing. Now I personally haven't got a stoop, but I can imagine that if I did, it would affect how I ran. You put all these together, and it sounds like Robert Napper to a T. Even the killer's attire rang a bit true with me about this. Black trousers and a white or cream-coloured coat. Because where have we heard of a tall, slim murder suspect wearing a white shirt and black trousers before through the arc? Yep, exactly. The hat, well, who knows? Could it have been some sort of disguise or camouflage if he was prowling around peering through someone's window at night? Had it been an addition after the murder of Rachel Nickel? Because the widespread artist's impression of her killer had spooked Napa so, and who knows? Perhaps he even had the same attire on when he murdered Samantha and Jasmine. 
No one can know. All that's known is the footwear that Napa had on on the night of their murders. But of course, you got to examine every possibility, so I considered the reasons against Jean's killer being Robert Napa. And the most striking aspect is the victimology. Jean was a lot older than the known victims of Napa. Plus, what's the motive? It doesn't appear to be a robbery gone wrong, and robbery has never appeared to have been Napa's focus. Plus, a middle-class residential avenue, albeit a darkened one, I would imagine an unlikely place for a sexual assault to take place. Now, I'm not saying that this wasn't the motive, it may well have been, and the killer was interrupted before he could commit this. Or, and this is more frightening a thought, I think, it may have been simply that there was a maniac walking around the streets of Acton that evening with the tools to kill and murder in mind, and Jean just happened to be the person in the firing line when the urge to kill spilled over into action. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? What an absolute tragic waste of a life. Jean's case has been reviewed periodically over the years by police. And in 2013, Professor David Wilson, I'm sure that he's familiar to many of you, as Dave is often to be found on a true crime documentary. He's one of the go-to experts that always seem to pop up on them, alongside Emma or Kerry or Elizabeth, you know, I'm sure you know what I mean. Looked at Napa's known crimes for a Channel 5 documentary entitled Killers Behind Bars. Now a link to the episode is in the previous episode's show notes. And on the programme, Jean's case was one of two that David Wilson considered Napper to be a decent suspect for. If you watch the documentary, then the other unsolved case featured in it, someone has since been convicted for, and as I said at the start, we'll meet him at a later date here on the show. But focusing upon Jean's case, David Wilson met with Patrick Cunningham to retrace the route that he chased Jean's killer along. Further to this, Working with a forensic artist, Steve Driver of Acume Forensics and using the latest V-Color eFit software, Patrick was able to describe an updated artist's impression of the killer 20 years later that when looked at side by side of the well-known mugshot of Robert Napper, looks remarkably similar. But Napper isn't admitting anything, is he? When I was researching Jean's case, as I do with all of the unsolved cases that I look at here on the show, I had my pad and pen at the side of me, and I always make a note of anything that strikes me, any thoughts or questions that the research raises. This one's no different, it raises a few, and I suppose the main question is why? Is this a robbery that went wrong, or a sex killing that was interrupted? Was Jean followed from Acton Town Station or further along her journey? deliberately targeted for whatever reason in the mind of her killer, or was she just in the wrong place at the wrong time and tragically lost her life because someone was out to kill that evening and it could just as easily have been someone else that died? I thought also, what on earth were the grounds to charge Frank Marnell with Jean's murder? Back in the early 1990s, what the bloody hell were the CPS thinking? It seemed that they would authorise charges willy-nilly. Then there's this reported claim in court that police neglected to do a DNA test which could have eliminated Frank Marnell at the earliest possible opportunity. My spidey sense proper went off there, 
because nowhere whilst researching could I find any record of unidentified DNA being found at the scene of Jean's murder. So how could police eliminate him against what? It's unreported as to whether Jean's clothes are still retained as evidence today. You'd have to hope so, wouldn't you, in storage somewhere. And the possibility exists that an examination of them, using today's forensic techniques, may just reveal that ever so tiny speck of her killer's DNA. Is this on the cards to do? Or is it a question of budget and backlog? I mean, it was there in Rachel's case, wasn't it? Perhaps it is in Jean's also. It struck me as well that in the case that I've looked at here, plus the other I've mentioned that's to be the focus of Patreon episode 30, Jean and Penny Bell respectively, that they're both unsolved cases where a knife has been involved. But I don't believe that Robert Napper should just be discounted from any crimes involving other methods of murder. Remember, yeah okay, he had receipts for at least four hunting knives that weren't found, likely hidden somewhere across London for future use. But this guy was also known to have had a pistol and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his bedsit. He had a crossbone bolts in there too. He had a gun buried in a biscuit tin on Wind's Common that he'd gone all Scorpio and fired through a window at a potential victim with. And even though he'd used a knife to kill her mother, perhaps only moments before, he didn't stab Jasmine, did he? Instead, he smothered her. So this is a person who I think is willing to various methods of murder, depending upon what excites him at the time. How many other crimes could be laid at the feet of the maniac that is Robert Napper? That's a scary thought indeed, isn't it? But Jean's family and friends still have that not knowing, don't they? And as the episode, and indeed the arc, draws to a close, I hope that you remember her and them first and foremost. In the 27 years since Jean's tragic murder, Nick Osborne had to learn to live without the woman he loved taken from him so senselessly. David Bradley had to learn to live without his sister. Should either still be alive, they will most likely be retired today, and you have to hope that although they'd never forget, of course, how would you? They each did manage to move on, and over time learn to live with Jean's death. So what do you guys think then about the sad tale of Jean Bradley? Is it another of Napa's horrific acts or not? I'd love as always to hear what your thoughts are concerning the case, so should you wish to, the episode thread in the show's Facebook discussion group is now up and it's where they usually are, but you can get in touch with me through any of the show's social media, I'm always happy to discuss. I'm not saying that all I've said here in the episode is right and what's happened. Remember, this is myself thinking out loud and I'd invite you guys to do the same. And with that, the maniac arc of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast comes to a close. When I chose the crimes of Robert Knapper for this series multi-part story, I didn't envisage it taking up the chunk of the series as it has. I knew there'd be a bit to maniac, but first off, I was considering just a four-part episode for it. But I felt that to do the tale justice, it's ended up as long as it is. I feel it's as long as it's needed to be. 
It's certainly the most in-depth researching and writing for a tale that I've gone into in five series of doing the podcast and it's been an unbelievable amount of work to do. It's been countless hours and more than a 100,000 words. But I have to say that your feedback for and appreciation of the arc has been nothing but glowing and it really has spurred me on to cover all parts of such a complex tale as best that I can. So it's much appreciated guys, thank you so much. There are books that have gladly gone back onto my library shelves now not to come off again for a long, long time barring cleaning or moving. And once I've wound up here, then if I never see or hear the name Robert Knapper again, it will be too soon. But I thank you for your patience and company through it guys. I've been proud to bring you Maniac. Next time around on the show, it's this series' listener written episode, which I hope that you can join me for. And of course, should you want to hear my spin on the unsolved murder of Penny Bell, then Patreon episode 30 will be out shortly also. With that, it's time for me to wrap up here, and I'm off to queue up for the pub's opening, as well as the barber's, because I'm starting to look like that fella from No Country for Old Men now, or a bloody Duplo man. It's getting out of hand, and I'm dying for a pint. I thank you as always for joining me here today and throughout the whole Maniac arc, And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you folks all good and safe times, keep it together guys, there is light at the end of the tunnel here now for us, and I'll speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.